All right, brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn your Bibles with me today to our our text as we begin a, a new study uh, this morning in the book of Jonah. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to, to Jonah chapter 1. And this morning we are going to be considering uh, verses 1 to 6. So Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 to 6. Please then, brothers and sisters, if you would, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the, the mariners, or the sailors, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Thus far is a a reading of God's Word. Now, there are certain figures in the Bible that that all people everywhere are pretty familiar with, whether you are a believer and an unbeliever or an unbeliever. And Jonah is is one such figure. And what makes Jonah such a popular figure, uh, what makes him so remembered by the masses is that is that one event. Right, that, that one event that is chronicled in the book of Jonah, where Jonah is, is swallowed up by this great fish and he stays in its belly for three days and three nights before he is regurgitated onto the dry land. But because now we live in an age of, of skepticism, what was once viewed as, as historical is now deemed by many to be fiction. Yet we need to see that Jonah nowhere gives us any indication that this book is anything but historic or historical. Uh, Jonah, who is traditionally identified as its author, is writing about a real situation that is occurring in the 8th century B.C. And so the book of Jonah, what we need to see is it's, it's a book of historic narration. It is not, uh, it is not poetry. The book of Jonah is not apocalyptic. It is not fictional, nor is it parabolic. It is is history. And it is true history given to God's people. And because the book of Jonah is a book of history, so too is the person Jonah. And the scriptures attest to this. We see this in in the book of 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 14 and verses 23 to 25, this is what we read. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebet, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Araba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now listen to this, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And so we see here, we learn that from this text in Second Kings that, that Jonah is the son of Amittai, that he comes from uh, Gath Hefer. We also know then that, that he lived during the time of the, of the reign and rule of Jeroboam II, which would have been the 8th century BC as, as King Jeroboam II ruled from 786 BC to 746 BC. What we also learn from this text in Second Kings is that this is not the first time that Jonah has been called upon by the Lord to prophesy, for he once prophesied about the restoration of the, the, board of, the borders of, of Israel, uh, which were fulfilled. And so we see that it is unmistakably clear that, that Jonah is revealed to us through the Scriptures as a real historical character. But not only do the Scriptures teach us that Jonah is a historical character, but it teaches us that, that, that one great event by which the world knows Jonah, that, that event too is a historical event that truly occurred. And in fact, it is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who, who speaks of this event as a historical event that ought to give us the confidence in, in, that, that it is such. As Jesus says after being asked by a, a sign from the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, he says to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we see Jesus is pointing back to this historical event as a sign for another historical event that will soon occur, his, his own being in the grave for three days. And so we see Jesus takes Jonah and the account of, that we receive from the book of Jonah to be historical, not fiction. Okay? Now there are many themes also that, that will run throughout the book of Jonah as we, as we dig into it. Uh, what you will see is uh, the sovereignty of God on display in the book of Jonah. One of the key themes that you see that lays really in the background of the entire book is the idea of, of covenant, right? God's covenant. We will see what I mean by that uh, more in just a little bit. Uh, we also see in this book of Jonah how God deals with spiritual declension or how he deals with, the, with backsliding of believers. And then also we will see the, the providence of God on display in the life of Jonah as well as the Lord's uh, mercy and kindness and compassion towards sinners. And so we get all of that in these four little short chapters. And so although this book is a, is a small book, we need to see that it is laden with great biblical truth that we ought to treasure. But that takes digging down into, mining the depths of, in order that we might discover this treasure as this book tells us so much about who our God is, right? who the God is that we serve. And this little book tells us so much about how we are to live as believers. And so we want to then begin our study in the book of Jonah 
by looking at these first six verses, and we're going to do this then under, under three main points today, okay? And the three main points are these. First, the prophet Jonah's call. The prophet Jonah's call. Second, the prophet Jonah's response. The prophet Jonah's response. And then third, God's dealings with the prophet Jonah. God's dealings with the prophet Jonah. So point number one, the prophet Jonah's call. Here we see in verse one that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, we are told. Here what we need to see is that this is a, is a hallmark of what it means to be a prophet. Right? It means that the word of God comes to you from God. A prophet is not one who, who thinks of words for himself who, or who has uh, his own words that he wants to say and so he goes out and preaches them. No, a true prophet is one who receives divinely a message from God and is commissioned to go forth and declare that message. And we have many examples of this. I'll just provide you two. In the opening book of Jeremiah, we read the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came to in the days of Josiah. So we see Jeremiah the prophet, the word of the Lord comes to him. We also see this in Ezekiel, in the opening verses of Ezekiel. We read, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And so we see that God's word is here divinely given to Jonah as prophet. And where does God tell him then he wants him to go? Well, we read in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, as we read that here today, there isn't anything very uh, shocking or surprising about this. We would say, of course, no wonder why God is sending him to Nineveh. There are people who who need to hear uh, about God. They need to be called to repentance. So there's nothing startling or surprising to us about this call. But we need to understand what period of history we're in here. This is pre-crucifixion. This is pre-New Covenant. We are in the, the midst of the Old Covenant. And so this, this shocks and it appalls Jonah as it would many of the Jews who were living during that time as, as Nineveh is a city that belongs to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are a Gentile people, a, a pagan people who are not in covenant with God and who are enemies to the Israelites. And so this commission of, of Jonah by God to Nineveh is likewise striking because what do we often see of the other prophets that God calls? When God raises up prophets, He usually sends the prophet to the nation of Israel, on the soil of Israel, for the good of Israel. Israel sins against God, and what does He do? He raises up the prophet. He sends them to the people to do what? To declare a message, to warn them, to turn back to God. But that's not what He does here. He doesn't raise Jonah up to send him to Israel. He raises Jonah up to send him to Nineveh. And God sends him to Nineveh and he calls it a great city. Now, why does God call Nineveh a great city? Well, he doesn't use the word great like we normally use it. Like, I went to this great restaurant yesterday. You need to, you need to check it out. That's not what he means. When he, when he says it's a great city, he's, he's using that word to highlight the, the prominence of the city as the city of Nineveh is the, is the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria. 
Right? Nineveh is the place where the Assyrian kings reside. There are some ancient writers who describe that Nineveh at the time, in fact, was the, the largest city in the world. And there are uh, modern excavations that support this claim. It's also been said that the population of Nineveh, of Nineveh was between one and two million people. And so this is a, a very large Gentile city and population here. And that shouldn't be hard for us to imagine, especially when we look at how God describes them at the very last verse of chapter 4. When Jonah is upset because God has compassion on Nineveh, he says this in chapter 4, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. So we see Nineveh is a very large city that, that Jonah is being sent to. And so we see right from the beginning, God tells Jonah, arise. He calls him to be his prophet. He tells him where to go. You're to go to Nineveh. But for what reason now is he told to go to Nineveh? Well, he says it was to call out their sin against them as he says their evil has come up before me. Now, if you want to read about the, the evil of, of Nineveh, I would encourage you to read the, the, the book of Nahum, which is a, he's a minor prophet, the book of Nahum, as it's, a, it's an oracle given to Nahum concerning uh, the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, and that destruction actually comes about in the year 612 B.C. Nineveh is destroyed. But it suffices for our intentions today to say that right, Nineveh was, was a, a sin-filled city. It was full of idolatry and lies and haughtiness and licentiousness and, and murder. And so this is a righteous command of God for, that comes from the Lord to Jonah. And this is, should have been a command that, that Jonah looks at with, with much responsibility, but also with much privilege. Right? He should have seen that call as a great privilege, as God is entrusting Jonah, as He has chosen Jonah for this important task to go into the greatest Gentile city in the world and to proclaim repentance to them, for they have sinned greatly against Almighty God. And it is with this call that the Israelites and Jonah, as representative of the nation, it is here that they get a, a sneak peek, we might say. We might, here it is, they have a, a foreshadowing of how God will one day embrace the Gentile nations according to the promise that He gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. When He says, through Abraham, right, the, the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Nineveh here that needs to be seen by us is also a, a picture of the Gentile world as well. And in this book, we see how God now then is preparing the nation of Israel through the preaching of the word to the, the ungodly Gentiles. Right? How he's preparing them for the time of Christ's coming when Christ will extend his kingdom to all people, both Jew and Gentile alike. Now, I want us to look at how brief, though, God's command to Jonah is. Right? He essentially says this, Rise, go to Nineveh, Call out their sin against them. Not long-winded at all, is it? Right? Very, very brief. He doesn't say, Jonah, here is my 25-point plan for why I want you to go to Nineveh. Let me, let me lay out every detail for you. No, God just gives Jonah a simple command and He expects Jonah to obey. 
And in this, brothers and sisters, we need to, we need to learn what type of obedience God calls His people to. And that is an obedience that needs no explanation. That is the type of obedience that God is calling His people to. It is an obedience to God's Word that doesn't need to know every single why before we do something. It is an obedience to God's Word like you would see from a, uh, a soldier to his commander or a servant to his king. When he says move, you move. When he says march, you march. And the, and the, and the master that we serve isn't an earthly commander or an earthly king. And so his command needs no explanation if he does not give us one. For God is sovereign over all things. All things belong to him. And he can dispose with whatever he wants, however he pleases. Also, God does not have to explain himself. And we should obey without explanation. Even if we can't understand what he is calling us to do, because we know the character of God. We know that God is perfect. And so whatever He calls us to do, whatever He says to us in His Word, what He's telling us to do is something that is just, holy, righteous, and good. Brothers and sisters, this is why Abraham could obey the Lord when he tells him, take your son Isaac, go to the land of Moriah, and sacrifice him. It's interesting. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham doesn't respond with, why, Lord? Abraham doesn't respond with, if you can provide me a good enough reason why I should do this, I'll do it. No, God says, take him, go sacrifice him. In the very next verse we're told, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took his son. Why can Abraham do that without any explanation? Abraham obeyed without explanation because Abraham knew the very character of God and he trusted it. And brothers and sisters, that is what we are being called to today. That is how we are being called to believe and to act. When we come upon a text in the Scripture that commands something from us, we are to respond with, Yes, Lord, whatever you want. Whether it's something that we agree with or don't agree with. Whether it's something we can wrap our minds around or not. Whether it's something we say to ourselves, Well, I might do it another way. No, we are to obey. Because God is perfect and His commands are perfect and righteous and just and holy and good. Think about it. When trouble strikes your life, when you may be spiritually hurting, when you are struggling with, with, with tough decisions, hard decisions to make, where is it that the Christians define their refuge? Is it not in the very character of Almighty God? It's in the character of God that we know that no matter what we're being afflicted with, that God is not leaving us nor forsaking us. Isn't it, isn't it comforting to the, to the Christian to know that no matter uh, what we are uh, hurting from or, or struggling with, that God promises to us in His Word to be our very present help in times of trouble? You see, that ought to comfort our souls and motivate us to unquestioned allegiance to Christ no matter what the Word of God commands of us. But what is Jonah's response? What is Jonah's re- This leads us then to point number two, which is the response of the prophet Jonah. The response of the prophet Jonah. 
Now God gives Jonah this great honor of being a prophet. This great privilege of being the mouthpiece of God himself. And he calls upon him to go to Nineveh and act. And how does Jonah respond? Look with me at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You see, instead of immediately obeying the Lord and going to the east where he was sent, right, he disobeys and turns around and goes the very opposite direction to the west, right, heading into the Mediterranean Sea to escape the Lord's presence. Now the question we all want to know is, why? Why would Jonah do this? Why would a prophet of the Lord who has experienced such privilege and blessing flee when he is called upon to do his job? Well, This is where understanding of that covenantal context helps us. So you have to understand that, that Israel is a theocracy. Right? Israel is the nation that God has covenanted with. They are a people who have entered into a special relationship with God. Right? They are His people that He chose to dwell amongst from all the nations of the world. They are the privileged people. They are the one who were given earthly promises of, of land and people and, and king. Right? Israel is called then to, to separate themselves from the world, to distinguish themselves from the pagans, and so the Israelites look down upon those other nations. Those are nations, those are nations and enemies that God will one day destroy. And so those pagan nations to the Israelites are, are not God's people. They are, they are despised people. They are despised nation that Israel wants no part of. And so this is why Jonah doesn't want to go and he doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. And he says just as much in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. There we read this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so we see what's behind the response of the prophet here. Right? It, he flees because he does not want his God. He does not want the God of Israel to have compassion and mercy on a people who are not a part of the Israelites. He does not want the Ninevites, to actually come to repentance and faith so that God would relent and that He would not punish them. Perhaps Jonah's thinking that he wants God to punish them so that they wouldn't rise up and turn around and destroy the Israelites. But whatever the case is, right, he does not want God to relent from punishing the Ninevites. He does not want God to show compassion and mercy upon them. And so we're told he, he flees the presence of the Lord. Now, when we read that he flees the presence of the Lord, we're not to think that Jonah actually believes that he can run away 
from the omnipresent God. And so we have to ask them, what does it mean to say that he runs away or he flees the presence of the Lord? Well, this phrase is, is commonly used throughout the scriptures. And so I'll, I'll take us just to one example so that we see what it means. And it comes from Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16. Here we are told that after Cain killed his brother and was confronted by the Lord, that Cain went out away from the presence of the Lord, out of Eden into the land of Nod. Okay? And so with this, knowing this, and with the knowledge that in Scripture, oftentimes uh, God makes His presence known in a particular land or place or locale, right? then what we see is that when one departs out of the land from God, that is what is meant by He departs from the presence of the Lord. Right? And so as Jonah runs away, he is departing from the presence of where God made himself known to Jonah. And that's what it means when it says that he, he fled away from the presence of the Lord. But it also means that as Jonah runs away, as he escapes, he is also running away from the, the felt presence of the Lord. Right? He is running away from the gracious, loving, merciful presence of the Lord, just as Cain did when he was um, excommunicated from the land of Eden and sent to go live in Nod. And what does his fleeing from the presence of the Lord then consist of? Well, at its very core, as he is fleeing, right, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to escape or run away from the Word of God. Right? The Word of God came to him and he didn't like it so he ran away. And so it's really the Word of God that Jonah is running away from. It's the word of God that he is fleeing from. He, he felt the pressure of the word upon him. He felt the word of God restraining him. He did not like what it had to say. And so he went for escape. And how is this pictured to us here in our text? It's not by coincidence that the description of his running away is depicted for us as Jonah going down. As he sought to flee from God's presence in order to escape the word, this is what we hear. He went down to Joppa, we're told in verse 3. He paid the fare and went down into the ship. In verse 5, as the waters raged, he goes down into the inner part of the boat and he lays down to go to sleep. Is that not what sin does to us? It makes us spiral and go down and down and down. Right? It brings us down to the filth and the dirt, and the muck, as it brings separation between God and man. And like Jonah, for so many of us, when we sin, when we go down and down and down, it's not because we don't know what we're doing. Right? Jonah is very aware of what he is doing. Our problem, like Jonah, was not an intellectual problem. Jonah's problem, like our problem, is most times is a moral problem. Right? Jonah had desires that he wanted to fulfill in his own life. He had a plan and a purpose that he wanted to see worked out in his own life. But what you will find out and what probably many of us have found out already is that when you flee God's Word, when you disobey God's Word, when you sin against God, all it will do is bring you down. It will only carry you into dangerous waters. Right? When you drift from God's Word and when you flee from God's will and His presence, what you are doing is you are forsaking peace 
and comfort. You are forsaking assurance that God's Word gives to us. The promises to those who obey His Word. And instead what you are doing is you are exchanging that for terror and fear, which is what we see that these sailors experienced on the ship that day. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to sit here in condemnation of Jonah, isn't it? It's easy for us to sit here and say, man, why did Jonah do what he did? But what I want us all to see here is that every time that we sin, we, like Jonah, are fleeing to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so the question that we must ask ourselves today is this, right? Am I backsliding as Jonah did? Am I going down in my Christian life? Is fleeing from God's presence and running from His Word my first impulse when God says something in His Word that is hard for me to hear? You see, Jonah wanted other than what God said. And so he disobeyed God's will. The question is, how often do you here today disobey God's will? Remember what the Christian life is, brothers and sisters. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of denying your will. Subjecting yourself to the will of God and making His will your will even when you don't understand His will. For God's ways are not our ways. And we have a perfect example of this in our text today. Jonah wanted God to use the Ninevites as vessels of wrath. But God had determined in this instance to use the Ninevites as vessels of mercy. And who are we to tell the maker of heaven and earth who he can bestow mercy upon? And thanks be to God that God is not like us in that way. For if you are a believer here today, you are someone that God has shown mercy to. And perhaps there are many of you sitting here today that others looked at and said, they're too bad for God's mercy. They're too wicked to receive the mercy of God. And yet what we see is that it is God's prerogative to show mercy upon whomever He desires. It is is God who chooses who will be the, the trophies of His grace here on earth. It is God and God alone who chooses. And when He calls someone by His glorious grace, by removing that heart of stone and giving you the heart of flesh, what He calls us to is to obedience to His Word. right? To obedience to His will. Because it's in His Word that you learn what it is we are to believe, how it is you are to live, and only then can you, can you trust that God is going to bless you with the riches of His grace. Right? If you desire joy and peace and comfort and stronger faith and fuller assurance and the ability to flee from sin and temptation, then don't run from the presence of the Lord. Rather, run to Him. Run to Him. Sprint towards His grace, not away from it. And you will discover that in the Word of God. And this leads us then to our our third and final point this morning, which is God's dealings with the prophet Jonah. God's dealings with the prophet Jonah. Please then look with me at our final three verses, starting in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. 
So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. What we need to see is that from Jonah's perspective, everything that he is doing is working out according to Jonah's plan. Right? Jonah wants to flee from the Lord, so he runs down to find a boat, and a boat's there. He needs to pay fare to get on the boat. He's got the money to pay the fare to get on the boat. He wants to go in the opposite direction from where the Lord is calling him to, and that's where the boat sails out to, to the, to the west, to the Mediterranean. And so to, to Jonah, it looks as if all the right doors are being opened to him. Jonah perhaps is even saying to himself, although the Lord called me to do this, perhaps he's okay with what I'm doing. Because look, he has opened all these doors for me to do what I'm doing. He has not prohibited my escape. And think about that, brothers and sisters. Isn't that oftentimes what we say to ourselves? We say, look, the Lord has provided this door for me. That means he wants me to go in it. When if we just stop and think for a second, oftentimes we tell ourselves that. Because that's the door we want to go inside. Not the door that God is calling us to. Especially when, when it opposes God's word. As we know that God is never okay with sin. But what we do see here is that God will permit His children to continue in their sin for a time. Just as He allowed Jonah to continue in his sin for a time. But why is that? Does He do it to destroy us? Does He do it to condemn us? No. In our confession of faith, In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 5, we're told this. God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Why? To chastise them for their former sins so what? They may be humbled and that they may be raised to a more close and constant dependence and support on Him always for His glory and for their good. This is what we need to see God is doing to Jonah in our text today. He's saying, okay, Jonah, you want to flee from my presence? You want to live in your sin? I will let go of the reins. And I will let you and permit you to do this for a time. Right? I will permit you to continue to go down and down and down until you realize when you hit rock bottom, you need me. And that you may learn to obey my every word and command. But God hastens this, this teaching lesson we see today as He, as he sends the storm as Jonah is on this boat that, that beats against the ship in order that Jonah would come to realize the, the error of his ways and the wickedness of his heart so that he might repent and turn back to the Lord. Now this storm was a bad storm, wasn't it? Experienced sailors are terrified of it. Even they know this storm is not natural. This is this is storm does not have natural origins. This is a storm sent from God because of what someone has done on this ship. And so what do they even begin to do? We're told they're throwing their, their belongings off the side just so that they might preserve their own life. What else are we told that they do? They, they, they cried out to their gods. Here we see that even, even unbelievers, even pagans know God exists. Even pagans know that, that God is due worship. And so they do all these things in order to prolong their life. And yet all the while, Jonah slept. Jonah's conscience was asleep 
because it had been quieted by sin. And so what does this do? It frustrates the captain of the ship, so much so that he he goes to Jonah and scolds him in verse 6, saying, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God in order that they will not perish. See here, brothers and sisters, how the prophet of God is humbled. It was the Lord God who called Jonah to go to a rebellious people and to rebuke them for their sin. And now what do we see? It is the prophet Jonah in the ship who is being rebellious to our Lord who is now being rebuked by the ungodly that he was sent to rebuke himself. See how God is is bringing Jonah to his knees. He is humbling his servant Jonah in this moment by being rebuked by these pagans. But we need to see this, that, that in the storm, that, that in the rebuke of this ungodly man towards Jonah, what God is doing is He is chastising Jonah. And in this chastisement, what He is beginning to do is to work within His servant to bring him back to repentance and obedience to Himself once more. Right? That is what God is, is doing here. Right? Jonah right now feels safe in his sin, but he feels safe no more when God sends the storm to crash upon that ship. And yet he does this to bring correction to Jonah. And he does it for Jonah's good, which we are going to see throughout our study in the book of Jonah. But in all of this, what I I want us to think about and us to do is, is to rejoice and be thankful for the storms that God sends to us. To be thankful that the Lord sends storms. Because if He didn't, we would be just like Jonah here, running away to our own destruction, totally in in chaos, in calamity, uh, bringing it upon our souls. And so let us thank God for trials, because in them, He is preserving us, He is perfecting us, He is growing us. In trials, He is teaching us what it means to be in covenant with God. That even though we are in the midst of trial, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That that in the midst of of trial and suffering, that He will never lose those who are His. That in the trial and in suffering, by His power, He will keep us in His grace. That He will use the Holy Spirit to convict convict us of sin. That God will both work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure, to the praise of His glorious name. And then finally, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close, let us finally thank God for Christ and the grace that we have in Him. For we all, like Jonah, departed from the presence of the Lord and disobeyed the will of God, but Jesus didn't. Jesus obeyed the will of God perfectly. And because of that, He took those like you and I who were once spiritually asleep and whose consciences had been put aslumber by our sin. And He caused us by the riches of His mercy to make us alive by grace and through faith in His Son, Christ Jesus. And the Father does this ultimately for the good of His church and for the glory and praise of His glorious name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we must confess our sin that too often, like Jonah, we flee from Your presence. We run from Your Word. We disobey Your will out of our own sinful hearts. And so, Father, we 
we confess our sin and we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sin this day. Likewise, Father, we thank you for the storms that you send in our lives because it demonstrates to us your love for us, that you are not willing to lose any of those whom you have given to your Son as you have promised to to raise us all up on the last day. And so we thank you for those storms that you give to us, that teach us, that correct us, and that bring us back to you. Uh, Father, continue to to teach us by your word the type of obedience that it is that you demand of your saints. Please give us hearts that want to obey, love to obey your word. And please give us uh, uh, wills that uh, bend themselves to the will of God in all things without question because we are more concerned with the glory of God than with our whys. And so, Father, we come before you this day and we ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.